Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. This episode is part of a long series exploring how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season three. Also, this episode involves a look into the legal system, but should not be seen as legal advice. November 13th, 1861. Reverend M.R. Watkinson sits down to write a letter to the Secretary of the United States Treasury. An actor is going to read the letter here. I'll interrupt a bit for context. One fact touching our currency has hitherto been seriously overlooked. I mean the recognition of the Almighty God in some form on our coins. You see, God was not yet on the money. To give you some context as to when this was, 1861, it was the beginning of the American Civil War. Brother fighting brother. Some people in the United States were of the opinion that the whole thing happened because the country had lost touch with God. I mean, shot in the dark, but I think the Civil War was about slavery. Still, Watkinson continued. You are probably a Christian. Kind of a bold statement. He just assumed that Salmon P. Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury, was a Christian. Was he? I don't know. It's not really important to the story. It's kind of interesting that he would assume that. Anyhow. What if our republic were not shattered beyond reconstruction? Would not the antiquaries of succeeding centuries rightly reason from our past that we were a heathen nation? I thought this was kind of fascinating too. Antiquaries pay a lot of attention to coins from the ancient world, believing they can tell us a lot about those societies. Like that the kings and emperors thought that they were gods. If a future generation were to look at our money and they didn't see God, what would they think? That we worshipped at a columned building with a statue of Lincoln inside? Or that we believed a pyramid with an eyeball watches us like Santa Claus? Adding God into the mix, to Watkinson anyway, meant leaving a legacy. Something for future generations to dig up along with CD players and Xboxes. As an aside, what do you think they'll make of the Twilight books? When they excavate those, will antiquaries imagine we believed in vampires and werewolves? That kind of bums me out. Anyway, back to the letter. The Reverend actually offered up a design for the money. What I propose is that instead of the Goddess of Liberty, we shall have next inside the 13 stars a ring inscribed with the words, Perpetual Union. Those 13 stars are for the original colonies. Within the ring, the all-seeing eye. The all-seeing eye is a triangle with an eye in it. Not quite the pyramid we have on our money now. The triangle with three sides would represent the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost who are watching over us. Yes, it's creepy. And yes, it belongs in a Nicolas Cage movie. I get it. But that's what he wanted. This would place us openly under the divine protection we have personally claimed. 
That there is a big statement that putting God on the money alone would offer us divine protection. Theologically, that's shaky. But you hear ideas like this all the time, that if we just did this one ceremonial thing, it would appease God. That could be prayer in schools, building monuments, a whole bunch of things. It's not totally off base. There are many instances in the Old Testament where stuff done by leadership impacts the whole nation. But there are also lots of instances of the people being judged for their actions. Then, when the New Testament picks up the story, Jews and eventually Christians are without a nation. The early church in the book of Acts actually doesn't give us many ideas about how to run a country. They were more concerned with building up the church and telling people about Jesus. The New Testament doesn't drop many clues when it comes to this debate. Are there things that the leaders of a nation can do to stave off God's wrath? Is adding God to the Pledge of Allegiance enough to stop an earthquake or an invasion? That's a big question, but that's what folks like Reverend Watkinson believe. From my heart, I have felt our national shame in disowning God as not the least of our present national disasters. According to the U.S. Treasury, this was the first letter they received asking that God be added to our currency. But not the only. Many people scratched out notes requesting a tribute to the Almighty. How God eventually got printed or stamped on coins is complicated. Because he wasn't there, and then he kind of was. Then he wasn't. And now he is. Let's take a little walk through history. In God We Trust first appeared on American Money in 1864, right at the end of the Civil War. But just on the two-cent piece, President Lincoln didn't like having God on the currency. And not everybody does. So there was a compromise, and it was just on that coin. That may seem odd, the president not wanting the Almighty on money, but consider this. The Bible says in Matthew 6.24 from the NIV, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So it's a little weird that he's etched on our cash. The Bible says we can't serve God and money, and yet God is on our money. Are we keeping ourselves and our spending in check by having him there? Are we saying God is money? You know, it's confusing. So anyhow, in 1866, the motto was added to a whole bunch of other coins. The gold double eagle coin, the quarter, the half dollar, and the three cent piece. Then in 1873, Congress said the Secretary of the Treasury may cause the motto in God we trust to be inscribed on such coins as shall admit of such motto. It went away for a while on some coins like the five cent piece in 1883 and then came back in 1938. It gets a little tangled here, so try to stay with me. It's on one coin and not on another. Until 1908, when the slogan became mandatory on all coins, except the penny or the five-cent piece. What could be simpler? If you had a handful of coins from this time, one might say, In God We Trust, while the next one wouldn't. The theme wasn't fully realized. 
until July 30th, 1956, when President Eisenhower signed a joint resolution of Congress that made In God We Trust the official motto of the United States. That resolution, by the way, was championed by a congressman named Charles Bennett. Now, it's okay that you don't know who Charles Bennett is, but he was a leader in the International Council for Christian Leadership, one of the groups founded by Abraham Veridi. You may remember Veridi as the man who founded anti-union prayer groups with well-connected members of society, eventually inspiring the National Prayer Breakfast. See? This all ties together. The next year, In God We Trust made its first appearance on Paper Money, where it is today. God has been on and off the money since the American Civil War. And not without controversy. Teddy Roosevelt thought that it was sacrilegious. It diminished God's name to have him there. Others saw it as government-sponsored religion, violating the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Others argue that the Pledge of Allegiance, God on the Money, the nation's motto, prayer before legislative meetings, and all those public expressions are really just an acknowledgement of our history. The 1950s were an era of public religion, emblazoning God on everything from cash to courthouses. In part, this came in response to growing fears of creeping atheistic communism. Real fears, remember. 20-something million people died under Stalin alone. If the Soviet Union was going to tie itself to atheism and collectivism, we'd bond capitalism and religion. Even if that religion was a little vague. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Darren, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What if God told you to live in a homemade tent for a week? Go out into the yard and build something with palm leaves, plants, sticks, and maybe some fabric. Plus, you had to make an offering by fire, have a big get-together, and do no work for a day. What would you do? A lot of Christians don't know this, but I'm talking about a real holiday, one prescribed to Jewish people in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. It's called Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths. I first encountered it in college. 
we had an active Jewish population and they set up colorful tents on one of the quads every year to celebrate. The purpose was to remind Jewish people of the Exodus, when God delivered his people from Egypt. When they were in the desert and moved around a lot, living in tents. This holiday was designed to remind them of that journey. Celebrations like these are a huge part of human life. People love holidays. We have fireworks every 4th of July to remember American independence from Britain. Palm Sunday services commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Groundhog Day reminds us that groundhogs exist. I'll have to get back to you on that one. All that to say humans love commemorating things. Holidays are just one way we do that. We also love monuments. Think of the 9-11 memorial in New York City or the wall in D.C. for service members who lost their lives in Vietnam. Collective memory is important to us. Let's not take that for granted. The Bible sets up holidays for us to remember things, and we set up our own. Remembrance is part of our DNA. So, in towns across the world late in December, we sometimes set up a crash. You know, a diorama of a barn with Mary and Joseph, donkeys and sheep, all staring down at a baby Jesus. Because we want to commemorate this moment when, whether you believe in it or not, the world changed. History took a different direction with the birth of this new baby. Yet, the presence of a manger on public land causes quite a stir. Like in the 1983 Supreme Court case, Lynch v. Donnelly. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. That's the voice of William McMahon, who represented the city in this case. The question they were there to decide, well, I'll let him tell it. The issue in this case is whether the Establishment Clause prohibits a municipality from including a creche. Again, a creche is a manger scene. In a traditional and dominantly secular Christmas celebration. A secular Christmas celebration. One that was held in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. The creche was part of a whole bunch of things on display and had been for 40 years. There were parties, Christmas carols, the lighting and decoration of public buildings in the commercial area of the city, situated on the grounds of a museum. A museum for a cotton mill that was not owned by the city. The Slater Cotton Mill is famous, by the way, as the first water-powered cotton mill in the United States. Some people even credit it with kicking off the American Industrial Revolution, which I think is totally cool. This season started with the Industrial Revolution, an event that partially led to the ousting of the Russian czars and labor unions in the United States. It began, in the US anyway, at this old mill. The museum site became the staging ground for a Supreme Court case. Honestly, it's a little spooky how this season all ties together. The display included Santa figurines, a big banner that said season greetings, and a guy in a costume dressed as Santa. Santa's house, a Christmas tree, the works. Included in this display, covering approximately 140 square feet out of the total 40,000 square foot area, is a crash. The crash owned and displayed by the city. 
it wasn't on public land. That was not the issue. The problem was that the city owned and assembled the crash. Compared to the total celebration, the manger scene was really pretty small, covering just over 3% of the total land area. Some people saw the crash and decided that it violated the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law restricting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The case hinged on the question of whether or not a crash was a religious symbol. Here is Justice Thurgood Marshall talking with William McMahon. Is it religious or secular? Is it religious or secular? The, the holiday justice or the, the crash? Either. So now McMahon has to make the case, is the holiday even religious? And is the crash religious? The crash is a dual symbol. It is a religious symbol uh, and it is also a holiday symbol. In his opinion, the manger scene can be both religious and secular. McMahon argued that it was the setting that made the difference. In a, a setting where the religiosity is promoted, then the religious meaning of the simple dominates. It's this idea that I wanted to point out. The idea that a symbol could be both religious and non-religious. It could stand for Christianity and something else. Heritage, perhaps. An important myth to our country, like the first Thanksgiving. Part of the story we tell our country and our people. This legal case is an important one for many reasons. First, it set the precedent that government-sponsored depictions of the manger scene are not unconstitutional if they are part of a larger holiday display. That could mean they are accompanied by other symbols, like Santa Claus or a menorah because they are not sending one particular religious message. Instead, they are about a season. The crash is then just one of a bunch of symbols that dilute the religiosity. Which brings me to the second reason we're talking about crashes. This case is also the first time the Supreme Court used a certain term, ceremonial deism. The phrase was born in 1962, when the dean of Yale Law School used it in a lecture. The concept was then batted around legal circles, but Lynch v. Donnelly was the first Supreme Court case to use it. The phrase is cited in the majority opinion. We have noted that government cannot be completely prohibited from recognizing in its public actions the religious beliefs and practices of the American people as an aspect of our national history and culture. After saying that, he referenced the case Engel v. Vitale, which we'll cover in our school prayer episode. While I remain uncertain about these questions, I would suggest that such practices as the designation of In God We Trust as our national motto, or the references to God contained in the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag, can best be understood in Dean Rostow's apt phrase as a form of ceremonial deism, protected from Establishment Clause scrutiny chiefly because they have lost through rote repetition any significant religious content. That last sentence is telling. I'll play a part of it for you again. The argument is that things like the Pledge of Allegiance, which mentions God and in God we trust, could be understood in a particular way because they are a form of ceremonial deism, protected from Establishment Clause scrutiny, chiefly because they have lost through rote repetition any significant religious content. They have lost through rote repetition 
any significant religious content. That's what ceremonial deism is. A mention of God out of ceremony, not out of religious expression. Lynch v. Donnelly concluded that the city was totally within its right to set up a crash, so long as it didn't mean anything particularly religious, as long as it was part of a greater display of holiday decorations. By contrast, a later case, 1989's Allegheny County v. ACLU, went the other way. It was about a nativity scene in a county courthouse. This time, the crash was owned by a private citizen, but appeared on public land, without all the Santas and Christmas trees. It wasn't a holiday display, it was a religious display. Do you see the difference? One city was able to keep up its crash because it was surrounded by a bunch of other items, many of them secular, like Santa, or generic, like a Christmas tree. The other was taken down because it was too specific, a solo crash on public land. Ceremonial deism requires a lack of specificity. It needs a bunch of other stuff around it to dilute the meaning. Remember the beginning of this episode where we went through the history of God on the money? The reason those words can be there, the court decided, is because there is a total lack of specificity. Which God is it talking about? We've spent the last several months walking through the rise of public religion in the 1950s. Together, we've seen how leaders in that era decided to fight atheistic communism in the Soviet Union by tying religion to patriotism in the United States. And I've been deliberate with my wording. They tied religion to the United States, not necessarily Christianity. That puts us Americans in a weird limbo. And we humans, at least in this era, are not good with gray areas. We want black or white. So we make up our minds that either the United States be a completely secular country or that it perfectly reflect our religion. When, in fact, according to the law, it's really neither. First, let's talk about the argument that the United States is completely secular. We have this idea that there is a wall of separation between the church and the state. Something that Thomas Jefferson is famous for having discussed, but not really placed into law. I think the synopsis of Lynch v. Donnelly shoots this down pretty well. The concept of a wall of separation between church and state is a useful metaphor, but it's not an accurate description of the practical aspects of the relationship that in fact exists. The Constitution does not require complete separation of church and state. It affirmatively mandates accommodation, not merely tolerance, of all religions, and it forbids hostility toward any. Anything less would require the callous indifference that was never intended by the Establishment Clause. Remember, we're dealing with a gray area here, so there is going to be some give and take. The First Amendment both stops the government from establishing a religion while also prohibiting that government from interfering in the free exercise of religion. So as an example, I drive a school bus for a living, which is a government job. If I want to wear a cross necklace, does that mean the government is sponsoring that symbol so I shouldn't wear it? Or is it my own free expression? It's a gray area. The wall of separation doesn't fully work because the government is staffed with citizens. 
and the government represents a diverse group of people with passionate opinions and beliefs. We're not automatons. That complicates things. So let's look at the other extreme, the one that says the United States is a full-blown Christian country. That gets tricky too, because so many of our public expressions of religion are vague. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. In God we trust. One nation under God. They're kind of mushy. What God do they refer to? The Christian one? Mormon? Jewish? Muslim? Which denomination? Catholic? Baptist? Unitarian? Are we talking about a monotheistic God? Or can God be plural? From those statements, it's unclear. Dare I say, it's unclear on purpose. That's the point of ceremonial deism. Even before the 1950s, there was concern that the United States was losing its Christian character. We'd lost our reliance on the divine. So we created these public expressions to cement him into our buildings and wrote sayings. As government-mandated school prayer was made illegal and fewer schools included Bible readings in lesson plans, the refrain that we were losing touch with our roots grew louder. We got angry that educators weren't teaching our children about God, that they weren't praying, that people were challenging standalone creches in public places. Is the era of public religion coming to a close? As we near the end of this series, let me ask you, now that you know where these monuments and expressions came from, is anger the most productive response to the disappearance of something vague? The whole point of this episode is to point out ceremonial deism, to add it to our vocabulary. Look for it when you go into public buildings, when you read textbooks or histories of the founding fathers, when politicians make speeches. I don't want to call it a good thing or a bad thing. Sometimes it just helps to give something a name. Also, you, personally, is the God you believe in ceremonial? A trinket, a checkbox, a flag pin on your lapel? Or is he your Lord, your friend, and your savior? Is he inscribed on your heart? If so, do you need some raised letters on a quarter to tell people about it? Or will your life simply reflect him? Sources for this episode include the U.S. Treasury Department's website and In God We Trust by Kevin Cruz. Supreme Court audio is courtesy of Oye.org through a Creative Commons license. I also relied on Justia.com where I read the Supreme Court decisions. I'll include links in your show notes and on the website. Truce is a listener-supported show. Have you ever heard anything like this? I'm guessing no. I'm working hard to do this thing full-time. That would mean better guests, more frequent episodes, and way less stress for me. Together, we can make that happen. Send a message that we think that Christian media can be fun, entertaining, and creative. Visit trucepodcast.com donate to help out. You can also help by leaving a comment on your podcasting app. It helps people discover the show, and I really do read them. 
We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And consider sending a friend a message to tell them that you love this podcast. Word of mouth is really great. Thanks to everyone who loaned their voices to this episode, including Meg Gleisner of the Letters from Home podcast, Jake Dobrins of the Bible But Funnier podcast, Jared Williams of the Biblical Wealth Podcast, Jenna Erlinson of the Bridge of the Faithful Show, and Josh Jackson, who's host of two podcasts, OCF Crosspoint and Leader Draw Near. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. <laughs>